today we're diving back into our text, um, and so I don't want to I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on, on other things, um, even though we will quickly review. Um, but if you have your Bible with you this morning, we're going to be in First Kings chapter seven. Um, if you don't have one, we have some over here, um, and so feel free to grab one, use it today, keep it, take it, whatever you need to. Um, those are there for you guys if you need them. Um, but we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 17, and we're going to jump into verse 17 today. Um, but before we get to that, uh, I typically don't start with a story or an illustration, but I want to start there today because I feel like it just ties what we're going to see uh, over and ties it so well together. So, um, how many of you guys um, have ever rode on a roller coaster? Have I been on a roller coaster of some sort? Okay. So I have a sneaky suspicion, but how many of you in this room would say, I love roller coasters? Okay. And how many would you say, not my thing? I love that. I love the fact that everybody in this room has rode on a roller coaster, and it's very evenly divided in, into I love it or I hate it. Um, and, and I think we all kind of have that feeling when it comes to roller coasters. Some of us love it. Some of us hate it. Uh, some of us enjoy uh, the thrill of being on a roller coaster. Others of us, um, that's just not that's just not our thing. Um, I remember uh, I should have probably asked permission before I shared this, but I remember my mom telling me one time that her and my dad were on a roller coaster one time, and she said that she got to the top and she said, "Lord, I promise you, if you get me down from here safe, I will never get on one of these again." And it's been like forty some years, and she's never rode a roller coaster again. So, I, I remember, though, very vividly when I was in high school, um, and I remember that uh, it was my first time going to King's Dominion, and uh, I remember they had a coaster there, and at that point, it was new. It was called the Volcano. You guys, you guys vo- Volcano, any of you guys been on the Volcano? Yeah. And so, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty fun roller coaster, um, and one part in, in the roller coaster, there's obviously this giant volcano, and the roller coaster is supposed to jump out, you know, shoot out the top of the volcano, and that's like the whole deal. Well... Um, when, when I was there, I remember standing in line and as you guys know, like when you go to, to ride a roller coaster, like that's pretty much what you do, right? You just stand in line and wait and wait and wait. And, uh, I remember, yeah, that, that's it. And so I remember standing in line waiting for, uh, the roller coaster and in this particular day, it seemed like the line was really not moving. Like I know most days it seems like the line's move, not moving, but this literally, I felt like we were just in the same place for like 30 minutes. As I started looking around, I started noticing I started noticing that I could start to see the top of the roller coaster come up and then go back down and come up and go back down. And this went on for like 10 minutes. And I guess what had happened was that the roller coaster didn't get enough speed going up to actually get out. And so for like 10 minutes, it was just this up and back down and up. And I just thought about like, what did those people think? Like what that must have been like uh, to to be on that ride and just constantly like up and down. Am I going to make it or not? And then, and then, of course, I wrote it afterwards, so, um, you know, that tells you a little bit about me. But still, you know, I think sometimes our life, um, right, kind of seems like a roller coaster, right? It's like we're, we're on a mountaintop for just a minute, and then all of a sudden it's like we're hurling back down to a valley. And then we shoot back up to a mountaintop, and then it's back down. And it's just this course of hills and valleys, peaks and valleys, ups and downs. And that's really like our human experience, Right? And, and what I've noticed about those mountaintop moments, right, those times that, that things are going well, it seems like those mountaintop moments typically can on, or typically only brief, very brief. Like we're only up at the top for a minute or two. 
kind of reminds me of like if you ever go mountain climbing, right? And if, if we were all to um, go climb, you know, a big mountain today, right? And we were to go summit that mountain, right? We're only going to be at the summit for just a few moments, right? Maybe enough to, to grab a picture, an image um, of the scenery, and then we have to start back down the mountain. And, and that's how mountaintop experiences are a lot of times for us. A lot of times those mountaintop moments can quickly be forgotten. It only takes the next valley for us to forget about the place that God just had us mm-hmm. in that experience. And sometimes our mountaintop moments come out of our darkest valleys in life. Right? Sometimes we are in the lowest, darkest places and then God shows up and, and, and just catapults us up into a mountaintop experience, a peak, if you will. And that's, that's, exactly, um, that's exactly what we see in, uh, in the story of Elijah. Um, he goes from a mountaintop experience down to a, to a valley moment. And I think what we have to realize is that we, we don't get too comfortable when we're on those mountaintops, right? Um, I've shared with you guys before, uh, I get the honor and, and privilege of walking with guys um, through some hard things in life. And uh, there's a ministry out there called Proven Men, and, and the whole purpose of that is to help guys with sexual integrity, um, to walk as men before God. And, uh, you know, everything in our culture just comes against that and says that it should be about you and what you want. Um, and that's one of the warnings that I always tell the guys is don't get too comfortable, right? Because when as soon as you're on the top of the mountain, you feel like, man, I got this thing under control. I'm living the way God wants me to. Like the next temptation, the next valley is right there. Um, and that's what we're going to see in the life of Elijah is that as soon as we see from last week, right, he had this moment where God provided this food uh, for this widow, provided for Elijah through this widow. And he did this miraculous act where the, the oil and the flour that they just kept replenishing and, and just provided for this widow. All of a sudden we move into the very next moment and, and all of a sudden it comes crashing back down into this, into this valley. And so I want to just read the, the, our passage together first and then we'll go back and dive into it. So uh, we're going to start in verse 17. And the word of God says this. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Or to say it in other words, he's, he died. Verse 18, and she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him in his arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, you have brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord. Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come back into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life uh, of the child came back into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. It's true. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, our time today. I pray you be our, our tutor, our guide. God, as your spirit comes uh, in each one of us, God, I pray that we would uh, rightly understand and divide your word. Um, Father, today I pray that, um, God, that we would just um, get at what you had uh, for, your, for your readers to know, God. I pray that that would be true of us today. I pray that we would 
uh, not just learn what you want us to have, God, uh, what you want us to know, but we would also apply it to our lives, God. Thank you again uh, for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, as we look at the context, right, of, of, this, of this passage that Elijah's in, I want us to focus our time and our thoughts and our attentions today um, on the idea of what happens when we're in those valleys. Because that's what we're really going to see is that this widow uh, and Elijah both come out of this mountaintop experience, and now they're back in this valley, in this low place, right? This, this unthinkable thing happens. Um, and and from, this, from this widow's perspective, not only was she heartbroken by losing her son, which is only so tragic, like I, I can't even imagine uh, what that must have been like, but also this was, this was her future of provision for her as well. Um, in this culture, she, she didn't have a husband, she wasn't married, and so her son was really her hope of future provision for her, that maybe he would grow up one day and be able to provide for her even in her older age. Um, and so it seemed like all of this now had disappeared. Um, with her losing her son in this moment. And so um, we're going to see how she responds um, to this valley moment. And I think what we're going to see is that we're tempted to respond in very similar ways when we go through valleys in our life. Um, And so the first way we see that she responds and we're tempted to respond when we hit valleys in our life is with blame, right? Is with blame. Look at verse 18. Look what she says. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? Right? What's she doing? She's shoving the blame to Elijah, right? Like, like why would you come and, and bring that against me? What did I do to deserve this? Um, and I think, I think what we pick up on here from the life of the widow is, is something that, we, uh, that I know that I intrinsically do. When things don't go my way, I tend to look for somebody to put the blame on. Right? Like if, like if something doesn't work out the way that I planned it to or the way that I wanted it to, I'm all automatically just seems like I'm programmed to try to find somebody else to shove the blame onto. And that's kind of what, what the widow is doing here. She's saying, man, what, what, what did I do to you, old man of God? Why would you come and say, literally save my son's life by providing food for him? Uh, it's what we just read about. And now, now he's going to die? Like, what did I do to make you? And she's just trying to shove that blame on, on somebody else. Um, and I know, I know that's just so true in my life. Um, whether it's I'm frustrated with something that I can't do or whether I'm going through a valley moment, I'm always trying to find somebody else to blame. But then when that doesn't work, right, I think the next step we go is then we, we go and blame ourselves, right? And that's exactly what she does. She says, you have come here to count, to bring to remembrance my sins, right? Is that why? Is it something that I did? Is that why this happened? And I think sometimes when we can't blame others for things, we tend to blame ourselves, right? Like when we, when we chase down that road of trying to blame others and, and that just doesn't work out for us, then we just turn the blame on ourselves. Well, maybe it's something that I did. Maybe that's why this, I'm in this valley is because I did something and God's mad at me and, 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 and that's why I'm going through this experience. And what she does and what we do a lot of times um, there's a, there's a term for it, um, and, and I'm by no means a philosopher. In fact, I barely pass my philosophy class. Some of you guys in here, like, you guys can just, y'all just think that way, and your brain's wired that way, and it's just not that way for me. Um, but what she does here, I, I had to look it up. Um, but I looked it up. It's called a post hoc fa- fallacy. Basically what that means is that um, if X follows Y, then X is the cause of Y. Or correlations suggest causation. 
Um, so in, in this wife's or in this widow's experience here, she's saying, you know what? If there was sin in my life, right, and, and then my son died, my son must have died because of my sin, right? That must be the reason that God killed my son was because of the sin in my life. Um, and I think what we have to be careful here is we can't read into the passage something that, that was not written there, right? We don't, we're not privy in this moment to seeing why her son died. Um, we see the end result, but, but, but Jeremiah, as he's writing this, he's not, he doesn't put that in there specifically. Um, he doesn't point that out because I don't think his point here is that we, we see that our sin is always the cause of um, these valleys in our moment. I think what, what his point was was for us to see that God is going to do something miraculous here and to point to what God was going to do. Now, I do want to be very careful, and I want to, I want to make sure that we understand that there are places, and Scripture is very clear, that sin can lead and a lot of times does lead to the wrath of God in our life. Um, I don't want to just over, overshadow that or make it seem like, man, it's just this happy go. God just wants you to be healthy, wealthy, happy, you know, that kind of thing. Um, because our sin does cause wrath of God in our life. Um, and we see that throughout the words of Scripture. Um, but we also equally see that God is also merciful and vindicates and loves those sinners and provides for them. Um, and so I think in our context today, we have to, to really just weigh in and look and see what the passage says. And Jeremiah just doesn't give us the information here of why her son dies, right? This is, these, are, these are thoughts that she's coming up with. Um, and Jeremiah just doesn't give us the reason. He doesn't give us those details. Um, it reminds me a lot of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Um, as, as Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 5, um, he, tells, he tells his, his followers, um, he says that God causes the rain to come on the just and on the unjust, right? Um, that the sun will rise on the evil and on the good. God sends his rain on the just and the unjust, right? And just because I'm going through a valley moment doesn't necessarily mean it's because of the sin in my life. It, it could be. Right? And I think that's a question that we have to ask when we go through a valley moment. Is there something in my life that's causing me to be there? Um, but I think at the same time, we have to be careful that we don't just blame um, and shift, want to shift the blame, right? Um, and so I think, that's the first, I think that's the first way that we're tempted when, uh, when we go through a valley moment, right? We're just looking for somebody to blame. We're looking for somewhere else to, to put that blame in that moment. Um, the second way that we see that happen, and, and we'll see it here in, in our passage uh, in the next little section, is that sometimes we turn to questioning God. We turn to questions, right? When, when, when we go into that valley moment and things are, are, are seeming bleak, right, we start to then question the goodness of God. Look at verse 19. And so Elijah here, he takes the son, he says, give me your son. And he took him up in his arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. Look at verse 20. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon this widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And I think, I think sometimes what we, we tend to do in those moments is that we it's, it's not bad that we question God, and there are things that we question and we can seek to grow up to, to understand Him. But I think sometimes what, what we allow our moments and our experiences to do is to allow us to question the goodness of God, question the motives of God. Why did God allow me to go through this? Why does God put this in my life? Why do I, why do I experience this in my 
life. And, and when we question the goodness of God, I think what, what happens for us naturally is we pick up on a very, very old tendency. We pick up on a tendency that was from the very, very beginning. If you guys remember in that, in that moment in the garden, right, everything's perfect, right? Adam and Eve, and, and they're living in perfect community with God. Everything's wonderful and everything's great, right? And then we start with, with chapter 3, and, and the Bible tells us that there's an enemy that, that presents himself, right? Um, and I think we have the Genesis 3.1 up here. Did we get that one? Look what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, right? That's, that's important we understand that the, the, ser- the serpent here, this picture that we're, we're trying to, that, that they're trying to paint here is that um, this wasn't just by happenstance, but there was a very uh, deceitful subtleness to this, right? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, right? And, 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 and what happens here is that the enemy doesn't just come out and full out attack God. He doesn't come out and say, you know what? God hates you, right? He, God doesn't love you. He hates you. Because I think if he would have come out and just did a, the full frontal attack on God, that Adam and Eve would have been like, what? He hates me? Like, he, no, he's provided all of this stuff for me. There's no way he hates me. But he comes in with a very subtle tactic. He comes in with a very subtle uh, question to question the goodness of God. Did God actually say that? Right? He goes on later on in that passage to say, God's keeping something from you. He doesn't want you to have the knowledge, right, of, of, of because when you do, you'll be like, you'll be like God, right? And it's a very subtle, subtle tactic the enemy uses a lot of times, right? And I think we, we, we tend to fall into that, don't we, in our lives? Like, we go through a valley moment and we say, man, What's God doing here? Does he really know what's best for me? Does he really like have my best intention at heart? And I think pain and valleys cause that in our life. We tend to question the goodness of God. It reminds me of uh, reminds me of that moment in uh, C.S. Lewis's book, and we've we've talked about this a few times here before. But it reminds me of that moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? When when they're asking about Aslan the lion, right, who, who represents God. And, and they ask, is he quite safe, right? Because that's the question that we want to know, right? Is God safe? Because if he's safe in our minds, we think, man, he's only going to give me what I want, right? He's only going to allow the things to happen in my life the way that I want them to happen. But as, as Lewis writes in the book through the characters, he says, uh, he says, safe, right? This is Mr. Beaver. He says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you, right? And there's that moment of understanding that, that life with God is not necessarily safe. It doesn't mean that we're never going to go through valleys. It doesn't mean that, that everything in life is going to turn out the way we expect or hope for it to happen, right? And I think in those moments, in those moments that we go through valleys, in those moments that we go through hard things in our life, that we don't just turn and automatically start questioning the goodness of God. But those should be moments that draw us into the presence of our loving Father. Those should be those moments that should, should cause us to go and to fall on our face and to seek Him in complete desperation. I think about, I think about what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, verse 8. So it, Isaiah recording God's words. He says, 
for my thoughts, right? God's thoughts are not the same as, as your thoughts, as our thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And I think what, I, what I've learned in my life um, and what I see throughout the pages of Scripture is that God often doesn't operate or work in the way that we expect Him to work. Um, God doesn't often um, even react or respond in the ways that we expect or, or think He's going to respond. But at the same time, He often and always responds so much better and so much deeper than the ways that we could hope for or even imagine. Um, and I think the problem a lot of times is when we're in that valley, uh, we have a hard time of, of coming out from that moment and seeing the perspective of what God's doing. Okay? So here's what I want us to do. I want us to take a couple of minutes, um, and I want us to discuss this, because I don't think I'm the only one that has had that moment, right, of, of, of either blaming God or questioning God. Um, I think that's probably been something that we all experience as we go through those moments of, of valleys, we go through those hard things. Um, so here's what I want us to discuss uh, for a couple of minutes. Um, when was the last time that you questioned the goodness of God or maybe even just the motives or the intentions of God? When was the last time that you were in that valley moment and you, you sat back and you said, does God, really, does God really have my best intentions at heart? Does God really know what's, what's best for me in this moment? Um, and if you have time, um, after talking about that, maybe, maybe share... Um, any insight that you've seen since that moment, how you've seen God show his goodness um, after, after that. So let's take a couple minutes and talk about that, and then we'll come back together and, and look at how Elijah actually responds in this moment. Um, and I want to clarify one thing. Um, I don't think it's inherently wrong to question God in those moments, right? I don't think it's inherently wrong to question when we go through something hard why this happens. I think, I think the problem comes in is when we stay in that moment of questioning and then we allow that to draw us um, away from the heart of God, when we allow that to put separation between us and the heart of God. So I did want to clarify that. I don't want anybody walking away thinking, man, I just got to deal with life and I can never ask questions. I don't think that, I think God is big enough to take those questions and I think he's big enough to reveal himself to us through that. Um, however, I don't think that it's healthy for us to stay in those moments, right? It's, it's not the healthy way for us to respond to stay in those moments of questioning, but they should lead us. Um, and what we see in Elijah's response, right? Because Elijah, he, he responds by God, what, what in the world is happening? Did, did you allow me to come here just to kill this poor widow's son? Right? But then right after that, Elijah responds very differently. And I think this is the way that we should respond in those valley moments. And that's with desperation, Right? That's how we see it. Look at, look at verse 21. So then Elijah stretches himself out on the child three times and cries to the Lord. Right? And look, listen to his words that he says. Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come back into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the child, and the life came back into the child again, and he was revived. Right? Listen to the desperation in this moment. Right? So he cries out as he says, oh, Lord, my God. There's this acknowledgement that Elijah realized there was nothing he could do in this moment. And that if anything was going to happen, if a miracle was going to happen in this moment, it was completely up to the one who was so much bigger than he was. And I think that that instance of desperation is something that we need to have, right? When we go through those valley moments, right? Yeah, the questions may come. Initially, blame may come as well. But we need to respond in desperation. God, we need you. This is the moment, right? When I get past what I'm able to do, God, I need you to show up in this moment. There's nothing I can do to fix it. This desperation. 
You see, for Elijah, this was a um, this was unknown waters that he was charting through, right? Um, this is there was no there was no manual that was written for this to happen, right? This is the first occurrence in Scripture that I could find where where someone has died and then was raised to life again, right? This is there was not a playbook written for this, right? Um, like I know, I know there's like two two kinds of people in the room this morning. I know some of us uh, we're operation manual kind of people, um, and then I think there's others of us in the room this morning that are just like let's just wing it and see what happens, right? Um, like if I were to bring up a box of Legos this morning, right? I know that there are two camps of people. I know some people are going to rip open that box and just rip open the Legos and try to put it together without even looking at what it's supposed to be. That's that's what I tend to do. Right, and, and and by the time I'm done, I'm like I've spent all this time, and I still don't get it right. And then I know there's other people in this room, Trina, <coughs> that are going to pull out the instruction manual. First of all, read it through three times, right? Get any clarification they need. They may even contact Lego, right, to make sure that they understand it right. And then they're going to put it together, and it's going to happen one time, right? However, in this moment, right, Elijah didn't have that luxury. Right? There, was, there, was, there was not like a handbook of how to raise people back from the dead. This had never happened. And so the only thing that Elijah probably knew how to do was just to respond in pure desperation. And I think that's what we get when we see his response. Oh, Lord, my God. This is, this is Elijah crying out to the Lord. This is, this is Elijah praying and asking the Lord to come and do something that he couldn't do. Commentators have talked, uh, I've read a lot of commentators that were talking about why he stretched himself over this child three times. And the conclusion is like, we have no idea. Uh, it's all circumstance, like what, why he was doing that. Um, he was, I think he was just in this moment of desperation and he was just trying, he was just praying. He said, God, you got to show up. And he just kept praying. And on the third time that life came back into this, into this young child. One commentator said, he said, this was an unusual prayer technique, but Elijah had no precedent for it. This was not because it was not because of his prayer technique, but because of his faith that God answered his prayer. Um, and so, in this very intimate moment, Elijah cries out in desperation for God. Right. And so, then when God brings this boy back to life, He restores the life into this young boy. Notice what Elijah does. I think this is interesting as well. It's very subtle, but it's interesting. Um, Verse 23, uh, and Elijah took the child and brought him down to the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives, right? Let's stop right there, right? It would have been really easy for Elijah to come down in that moment and say, look what I did. I brought your boy back to life, right? As if, as if he had something to do with that, right? But, but he wanted none of the honor or the credit for that. He's just like, look what God did. Your son is now alive. Right? Your son is now alive. He, he wasn't seeking the credit even in that moment, right? But he was driven by the desperation in his life. Now look at verse 24. Look at how this poor widow responded. Look at what this did, this moment did, this valley did in her life. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. Right? I think in this moment, she went from being a fan of God to being a follower of God. She went from that mountaintop moment, right? If you guys remember last week, um, at the very end of that passage, um, when, when, she, when, that, when that food continued to restore, she's like, now I know that you serve the one true God, right? Um, 
And, and she's like, now, now I believe that because I've seen that in that mountaintop moment. But yet when she hits this valley, she's questioning again. But because she went through this valley, now she's a follower, right? She's like, I know that you are a man of God. And more importantly, that the word of the Lord, your God, is truth. Uh, and that's what you speak. And I think sometimes it takes those valley moments for us to move from being a fan of God to being a true, complete uh, follower of God. Um, I, I think, I think in, in our lives sometimes the greatest growth that happens it doesn't happen just from those mountaintop experiences where everything is great and wonderful, but they often come in those valley moments. Um, it reminds me of, a, of, of the story of, of Corey Ten Boone. A lot of you guys are probably familiar with her story. Um, and she, she wrote a lot of her story in a book called The Hiding Place. Um, Corey Ten Boone was a survivor of the concentration camps. Um, she was there for for a long season with her sister, and she writes in this book about her experience of being in those concentration camps. Um, and she tells one story that um, just, it blows my mind every time I, I hear it or I read over it again. Um, but she, she writes a story um, in there about uh, one of her experiences. She said when she got to the certain concentration camp, she was there with her sister. And um, as they were there in this concentration camp, she says that, um, every day, um, she, her and her sister would talk, her sister, uh, her name is, uh, Betsy, and they would, they would pray, um, and they would just seek God, and one day Betsy came to her, and she said, Corey, we need to be thankful to God for everything that he gives us, and she's like, yeah, absolutely, and so they started praying and thanking God for the opportunity to be there, uh, for the women that they were there, they started praying for the prison guards, and then one day Betsy come, and she, she said, Corey, we need to thank God for the fleas. See, the, the dormitory that they lived in was, was infested with fleas. And, and Corey said that she looked at Betsy and she was like, fleas? Like, there's, like, there's got to be a limit, right? Like, I can't be thankful to God for fleas, right? These things are biting me and they're horrible. And like, I can't thank God for the fleas. And Betsy's like, God, we got to thank God for all things, no matter good or bad. We need to be thankful to God for those uh, in that moment. And so, so Corey writes in, in her book, she says that, um, you know, she, she, still, she still couldn't get to that place of thanking God for the fleas. And she said, uh, until one day, um, she, was, she was in her dormitory, and she said they had asked one of the prison guards to come bring them something. And she said um, she noticed that that prison guard would not come into their, into their dormitory. And they asked the prison guard, like, why are you not coming in here? And she said, it's because of the fleas. And in that moment, it all clicked for Corey that the fact that she had so much privilege and protection, even in the midst of that concentration camp, was because of the fleas that God sent to protect them and allow her to have the opportunity to minister to all these other ladies. And I think often sometimes we look at all the valleys that we go through in our life as these negative moments of God either hating us or has something against us or that he's just setting it up, up in the cloud somewhere with a, you know, with a lightning bolt ready to throw it down and... And what if God is, is sending some valleys or allowing some valleys in our life to grow us, right? To, 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 to change us into the image of his son, to, to push us to where we want to go or where he wants us to go. Corey Ten Boone said this. She, said, uh, she gave a great analogy one time. She said, it's, it's like you're on a, on a train and you're going through a dark tunnel and there's no light. She said, you got two options in that moment. You can either jump off the train or you can sit down, hold on, and trust the conductor who's driving the train. And I think sometimes in those valley moments, like that's that's that experience that, that we find ourselves in is do I trust God? Do I trust him through this valley? 
Do I trust him through this heartache? Do I trust him through the pain? And am I going to respond to him in desperation? You see, that's the, that's the story of the gospel, right? That's the story of the good news is that we were in this desperate condition. We were in the lowest valley possible. And God sends his son, right, to save us in the midst of that, in the midst of the darkest moment. He sends Jesus to restore our relationship with him, you know? A lot of people have asked about the story of Elijah. They said, is it possible that God would still raise people from the dead today? It's absolutely possible. That's the story of the gospel. It's the story of a dead sinner's heart being raised to new life, right? Bringing, bringing new life into something that was so dead and so useless to something that now is alive and has purpose in it again. That's the story of the gospel. And I'm so excited this morning that we get to we get to be a part of that. Those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, like that's our story, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, because of his great mercy, has now brought us back to life. That's incredible. That's incredible, right? And so this morning, the way I want us to kind of conclude our time together uh, is we're going to just celebrate with some time of communion together. Um, and so we're going to have the we're going to have the bread and, and the cup set up um, at the table. Emily's going to come and set that up for us um, over here. And in this moment, um, I really want this moment to be a moment between you and God. Um, I don't want it to be uh, a compulsory, compulsory moment where it's like, okay, now it's my turn to stand up and go do this. But I want this to be a moment where we just all have some sacred time and sacred space to think about our relationship with God. Think about that gospel. Think about as, as we're going to take communion and what that represents, the, the bread representing the body of Jesus that was broken for our sins and the blood that was shed so that we could have new life in him that would cover our sins, right? And so in this moment, we're going to have just some music playing um, and, and we're going to have the table open and, and it's open for you to come um, and, and respond in that moment. Um, some of us, we may need to sit for a few minutes and just respond. We may need to work out where things are between us and Jesus, right? Um, sometimes we, we allow junk to get in the way, things to get in the way between us and him. And so, so maybe you need to just sit there for a few minutes and we're going to have time this morning. I'm wrapping up unusually early today. It could be because I forgot to do a question, um, but we're, we're wrapping up unusually early this morning so that we have some time to just sit, um, and to, um, experience and to just work on our relationship between us and Jesus. Um, some of us, we may be there. Things may be good between us and Jesus, and we can just move um, straight over into that moment of, of taking the, the bread and the cup. Um, but we want to have that. I also want to give warning, as Paul gives warning uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that, that make sure that we don't take this in an unworthy manner, Right? Um, that our hearts are in a right place. So if there is junk between you and God, there's distance between you and God, like take time to work on that this morning. Take time to, to whatever that needs to, to happen to do that. If there's, if there's strife between you and another believer, like work on those things before you come together so that when we come to the table, when we come to remember what Jesus did for us, that we can come with a clean heart and clean hands. And so we're just going to take this time um, and to pray. And whenever you're, you're feeling led to come and to do that, um, that will be available for you this morning. Um, I will be somewhere praying myself. And so if you need somebody or would like somebody to pray with you or something, talk with you about anything, I'm here for that this morning. 
Um, after we have some, some music playing for a little bit, um, Ross and Holly are going to come and lead us um, in, in one more song before we close out today. Uh, but the table's going to continue to be open. So even if you need all that time and you, you still want to come after, after we're singing that last song or while we're singing that last song, that'll be open as well this morning. And so I want us to, to just close out um, this time in prayer. And then we will uh, move into a time of, of response through taking communion together. So, Father, thank you for we thank you for valleys in our life. God, we thank you for mountaintop moments and peaks in our life, God. God, we thank you that you are still God, whether we're in a mountaintop or whether we're in a low valley. God, I pray this morning as we have the opportunity just to celebrate the death of Jesus and the price that he paid for our sins, I pray that that God, we would come come to that with clean hearts and, and clean hands, God. I pray that, um, Father, that as we respond through taking communion this morning, that, God, it wouldn't just be an act that we do. Father, it wouldn't just be a religious duty that we do, Father, but it would be a true meditation and remembrance in our hearts of what you did for us. In the same way, God, that we saw your prophet Elijah respond in desperation to this valley moment, God, I pray that that would be our response as we come to the communion table today. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for the time together. Thank you for the encouragement of the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ being able to gather. God, I pray that you have been glorified through our time and you continue to be glorified through the remainder of our time today, God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.